Welcome to episode 133 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Just over a year and a half ago, I launched my first book, Croissants versus Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking at Conferences. It received 100 Amazon reviews on my launch day and 150 reviews worldwide within a week. I'm often asked how I managed to get such great results. Polite persistence is the key. Science has proven that helping others makes us feel good. Let's say you agreed to write a review for my book that would make you feel good. But what if life happened, you never got around to writing the review? That would probably make you feel crummy. After a while, you might even avoid me and put off reading the book because you feel so bad about not writing the review. That's where polite persistence comes in. I did everything I could to make the experience of writing review as frictionless as possible. I personalized my frequent follow-up messages and broke down the request into manageable steps. My launch team told me that they felt supported around helping me. I'm not saying it was easy. I'm saying it was worth the extra effort to help my launch team members follow through on their intentions. They feel good and I feel good. My wife just experienced this around LinkedIn recommendations. As she began her job search, she had asked several colleagues to write recommendations. Several said yes. She didn't send any reminders. Then she received a message a few weeks later. I just realized I didn't take care of your LinkedIn request. Is it too late? I really want to post some good comments for you and hope I haven't missed the opportunity. This message coincided with a different colleague asking my wife for a LinkedIn recommendation. She prioritized writing it that night because she didn't want it to become a to-do item knowing she would feel bad about it if she didn't follow through. Completing that request made her feel really good about helping a colleague. And then... She sent reminders to the folks who had agreed to write a LinkedIn recommendation for her and had not yet followed through. Your challenge for this week, reflect on a time that you said yes to doing a favor for a friend or colleague and didn't follow through. How did that make you feel? Now, think about a time that you received support from that friend or colleague so you were able to follow through with your intentions. How did that make you feel? Apply what you learned any situation where you're the one doing the asking. If you help your friends and colleagues follow through with their intentions, that will help them feel good and you'll feel good too. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's show. Today's guest helps workplaces build inclusive cultures by addressing barriers to equity and access. She is a diversity and inclusion strategist, author of an award-winning book, The Diversity Advantage, Fixing Gender Inequality in the Workplace, and Seattle University's Professional in Residence in Communication. She was also recognized as one of 30 management thinkers to watch globally as part of the Thinkers 50 2019 radar. Please join me in welcoming Ruchika Tulshian. Thank you so much, Robbie. Thanks uh, so much for joining me from your office. You're over in Seattle, Washington, and by the miracle of technology, we are chatting here today, which is awesome. Um, this is a show, as you know, about building strong networks and, and it's the context of leadership, right? Because you can't succeed in your field industry by yourself. 
So my question to you is, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Great question. And Robbie, I wanted to start off by saying that it really took a long time to accept myself um, it, in the context of that word as a leader, you know, so a lot of times people would say you're a leader and I'd say I'm not, you know, um, and so much of that revolves around the messaging, especially that women, women of color um, receive about who gets to be a leader. But I started owning it, I'd say, um, you know, a couple of years ago when I got comfortable with creating sort of what's my own definition of leadership, um, you know, based upon many, many other uh, well-known thinkers, which is really to inspire um, others to get uncomfortable and to take action, to make a change in the world. So obviously I'm a leader by title when I'm a professor in my classroom, um, but the real fun begins when uh, my students are kind of inspired to do things that they've never done before. You know, we we talk a lot about privilege, a lot about equity and access um, in the media um, within a lot of my classes. And it's been really, really amazing to be part of that and to lead sort of both by um, example, and then especially by inspiring the action, right? With the, with the clients, I advise leadership to me means when I can facilitate or help facilitate that shift in thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion from this idea of like, it's their problem out there, it's someone else's problem, to it's our problem, we all lose if we don't fix this, and therefore we all win when we actively make a change. So, and then to inspire action around that. I appreciated that your definition includes um, helping people move out of their comfort zone, right? And, and, and that, that, and, and leads them to action that we can't, um, if people were already comfortable doing it, it probably doesn't require much leadership. Is that kind of what your take is? You're so right. That's absolutely what I believe in. I also think leadership, when I think about the actual skills, I think for me, leadership really means to develop great listening skills, right? And literally listening more than you talk. Um, so certainly as a journalist, I developed those skills early, but I, I just think we live in a world where we often, we don't really listen to to really hear or we don't really hear to listen. We um, we sort of hear to talk back, right? And we, we sort of, you know, it's a very sort of passive process. And active listening is really what I found uh, differentiates the people who I look up to as leaders um, versus those who are just leaders by title, but not really by example. So uh, I always like to ask people sort of even further back in their history, you know, when you were a little kid and you've already brought up the idea of who you look up to. So I know you didn't grow up in the States. Um, are there people early on that helped you understand this idea of leadership, the way you're thinking about it now? Did you see people embodying this? Well, so many. So I actually grew up in Singapore, which is a very diverse uh, sort of uh, multiracial country, right? And it's a small country. So you're kind of, you're, you know, you see people and you have friends um, from all different sort of walks of life. And that's just a fact of life. Um, so I saw that very early growing up and that has really inspired uh, the way that I think about leadership and equity and diversity and just as a way of life, right? As a reality. Um, 
From a young age, I mean, I would say, you know, I have these amazing memories of watching Oprah on TV. And I know, you know, I think I think Americans I've met here have, you know, mixed relation, have a mixed sort of relationship with Oprah, you know, as a talk show host and then, you know, as a as an amazing uh, listener all these years. But for me, it was very inspiring to see her on TV in Singapore um, and really drive forward so many of these conversations around equity, around access, all of that. Um, and then really leading by example, by listening, right? By inspiring action, um, by by really blazing trails and, and, you know, and really busting through the glass ceiling. Um, so, you know, I bring up Oprah very often. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And you never know who knows Oprah, right? Like mention it as often as you can. If you know Oprah, please think of me out in Seattle. <laughs> if you would like to have lunch with her, um, go for a walk with her, Anything. whatever fits in her schedule. <laughs> walk, <Yeah>. her <laughs> walk her dog. See? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you mentioned the idea of being a trailblazer. Is that something you see for yourself? And were you a forward-thinking young woman? Did you think of that even when you were a little girl? Or were you sort of watching? Was, was the culture more to sit and observe? And now you're coming into more of that sort of presence. I was always a storyteller. So some of my earliest memories are reading um, you know, fiction back in the day. I love Roald Dahl and other authors, um, a lot more British authors growing up in Singapore. Um, and, and then I would, I would sit in my room for hours, both reading and then writing stories. So storytelling definitely uh, began, you know, that came to me naturally. It came to me early. It's something I practiced throughout my life. I didn't know that there really were careers in which you could actually tell stories for a living. You know, I thought it's either journalism where, you know, you're telling only other people's stories um, and, and usually in a very professional capacity. And that's something, you know, I, I know we don't, this, this podcast really isn't about media, but it's, it's this changing world where we have this desire and hunger for actual stories, right? Like what are people going through? What's actually happening? Where can we listen? Where can we inspire action? And I think that came to me from a young age. It's been, it's been awesome to develop it. It's been great to develop my voice here in the United States, definitely. Um, but I do think that passion for storytelling for storytelling came early. How old were you when you came to the states? Um, you know, I, I <laughs> I'll say I'll say that I came to the states seven years ago, so I don't reveal my age. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't have known how many years ago it was if you said what age. <laughs> oh, Ruchika. Okay, so um, so it's been so it's been a little while as a as a young professional. You've been here establishing yourself. And you have this history of growing up in this very multicultural, diverse culture, community, um, where you can really see that the intentions can be set. And then you come to the States and you realize that you can bring your unique perspective, it sounds like, into, into this like fraught conversation that we're all having or sometimes not having with each other. How, what was your journey to becoming an, a diversity and inclusion strategist? Like, was that a direct path? Did you know that was what you wanted to do? Or did journalism sort of lead you there? Or like, how, how broken is this career path? 
Not even close. Like I, again, so back to storytelling to, to where I am right now, I didn't know that this was a career path. And sometimes I just feel so lucky. In fact, I was having dinner with um, someone who's an academic who I consider a mentor. And, um, and, and, you know, she, she said, what do you want to be doing in the future? And I said, I said, you know what, I really love what I do right now. And, and I get to be, I get to tell stories through the writing that I still get to do. I get to teach. I love being in the classroom. I love my students. And then I also get to advise and be part of organizations and see if there's ways that I can, you know, make change and facilitate change there. Um, so the, the path was, the career path was pretty non-traditional. I trained as a journalist. I was a business journalist. I've operated in six cities and four countries and, you know, really, really, um, enjoyed sort of being a business journalist, uh, definitely started noticing like, Hey, how come there aren't many women leaders? How come there aren't many people of color leaders that I'm interviewing? But it just, it still, you know, it didn't really, there was no aha moment. Um, and then I worked in technology when I moved out to Seattle and, um, this, you know, it was before a lot of the conversations, um, that, that have now become, I mean, the, the taxonomy around like, race and gender and discrimination and, you know, even the Me Too movement. I mean, these things are now, um, have certainly entered our, our common lexicon in a way that it hadn't back then. And so really seeing up close, you know, and, it, and I realized it wasn't just one organization. It just, it wasn't just a few people. It was an entire industry, right, that really needed to confront a lot of the issues of bias and discrimination um, that were being allowed to be, you know, that were, that were going on unchecked. Mm -hmm. So that's what led me to write my book. And then from there, uh, you know, continue my work and, um, looking into diversity and equity and inclusion. So the way you and I, uh, connected is actually, I was, uh, reading through, uh, HBR, uh, online Harvard business review. And I saw an article, and it was titled, How Managers Can Make Casual Networking Events More Inclusive. And the sort of subtext was that it was going to be an article about how, in particular, women of color don't feel very comfortable in these workplace social gatherings. And I was so intrigued because it's very uh, in line with the inclusion is sort of a through line of, of the work that I do. And so um, tell me a little bit about sort of this piece, that how you're approaching this, how are people responding to this? What you? I feel like you're trying to come at this at a sort of unique angle, and I want to know how it's resonating with people as you're as you're leading this work forward. Yeah, I mean, I was I was really happy to see that the article did well uh, online. It actually became an HBR management tip uh, that they send out um, to their you know to all their subscribers. So that was really really awesome of this newsletter. A management tip and it was really it's really based um, in this idea that hey networking is super important um, and the way that we network today benefits some people and, and and is actually detrimental to the careers of others especially people from underestimated backgrounds um, and I really wanted to get to the heart of that about how, you know, making small, it, you know, seemingly small, like design changes, you know, letting people know well in advance rather than, you know, sort of at five o'clock being like, okay, everyone who's free at this moment, we can go. And then, you know, disproportionately impacting, um, you know, people who are caregivers or may have other commitments, things like that. 
Um, and then, you know, I mean, d- d- literally the most simple things that sometimes we take for granted, especially if you're in the majority, especially if you're in, a, you're in a situation or position in your life for a variety of reasons that you can just turn up at any networking event as and when you're invited or, or maybe you're the person who's always creating it and just making simple changes that could have long lasting, sustainable um, a long lasting and a sustainable impact on the careers of women and certainly women of color who are very often left out of these sorts of networking opportunities. You know, what I appreciate is that it's so, uh, had a lot of really tangible takeaways and we'll put a link in the show notes for people who want to check this out. I think that is amorphous sometimes the idea of wanting to like fix the, the problems of inequity in a workplace and you were like, well, here is a specific thing you can do. And, and we all have to acknowledge that the informal conversations that happen in those social settings are often the reason why one person is chosen for a project over another. Um, FaceTime matters a lot. And if you are never invited or you're invited, but it's last minute or it's in a bar and you don't drink and there's like all these sort of social graces that you have to navigate through then you may not have the FaceTime that you need. And this is a way we have to sort of break the old boys network. So definitely, you know, great food for thought. I thought it was very unique, again, perspective on sort of taking an amorphous problem that we all say is a problem, or most of us agree is a problem at least. Um, <laughs> and then how do you tackle that? So I, here's what I want to know is, what do you find most rewarding about the work you're doing today? I really, you know, coming back to that idea of leadership, it's been it's been great to hear from people the changes that they've seen made in their own, you know, in in their own context, right? So I remember I had so I can, you know, I can think of 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 examples in my work in the classroom. I can think of examples with my work with clients, with readers. Um, you know, I love thinking about that article, thinking thinking about how um, I I heard feedback from readers like, hey, it was great for me to be able to share this with my manager in a sort of, hey, you know, maybe you should know about this. Before that, I wrote an article for Harvard Business Review about office housework, right? Again, this sort of intangible, non-promotable work, which largely women and people of color get assigned to do. There's now research to back that up. And, um, you know, I love hearing from people like, hey, I was able to forward this on so that I wouldn't be the person needing to have this conversation. But if I ever had to, my manager and I could be on the same page, right? So I wouldn't have to do all the education behind it. So that's that's really rewarding. Um, obviously rewarding to hear about changes that are actually made. So somebody actually wrote to me and said, Richika, after reading your office housework article, it was it was a white man who I who I know um, who I know professionally, but this this really blew my mind. He was like, after reading your article on office housework, all meeting notes in our meetings are now going to be taken by men and we rotate. <laughs> so the women don't take meeting notes anymore. And I was like, wow, that's like a small, but a simple and small change that will hopefully have a profound impact in the way sort of work is valued and appreciated. Um, You know, in the classroom, I had um, in one of my classes, I had my students do what's what's called a privilege walk. So you sort of you take a step forward if you, you know, agree with the statement, which means that you have privilege and, you know, take a step back if you don't or uh, stand in place. And, and my student said that it was kind of profound for him 
to, to take a step forward when, when I said, you know, take a step forward if you've never had to think about whether you would find um, a Band-Aid that would match your skin color, right? He's like, oh my goodness, like it's just these little small things you take for granted. Because really, if we're trying to think about making institutional and societal level changes, yes, there are the big things that need to happen, but there are also the really small everyday things that need to be changed. And that's, I think, what really, what, what I find really rewarding. And on the hard days, I kind of hang on to those little, little, small one person changes, um, you know, that I, that I, you know, hopefully can take a little bit of credit for. Yeah, well, I think you can. I'll give the credit for it. Um, I think that what's cool is that, you know, systems are made up of people. Um, and so when you influence a person like the, um, the white man that you knew professionally, who now is thinking about who takes the notes, um, I think what's interesting about that is while he's made a shift in his thinking by, by uh, saying that that's the case from now on, everybody who joins his team from now on is going to be told that. And then they're all going to wonder why. And the education around that will continue. So there's a ripple effect forward. And it might lead to, you know, well, who cleans up after the meeting? Who sets up the meeting? Who, like, makes sure the refrigerator is stocked? Like, all the little things. All like you said, like the housekeeping that happens uh, informally, maybe that ripple effect continues. So. And that, that's how shifts happen. It's kind of cool to hear that you can get at people. And I think what's interesting is it's a way of doing it without blaming people. Because a lot of times, that, like the fact that he heard your message means that you wrote it in a way that people can hear it. And that's, that's a talent in itself. So as you've been building your network in, in the US and you've been here for seven years, what's that been like? Like professionally shifting and having to like build a network? Did you already know people here? Were you starting from scratch? Is it really based on the fact that you have these places of employment that were able to build at your network? Like, how did you intentionally, I know you, I know when we talked for a minute beforehand that you're like, I'm about intentional communities. And I'm like, I am too. So what was your intentions around building a community for yourself? Um, so I'll, I'll answer your first question, which is actually, um, it was actually very, I didn't have a built-in community and I've actually not had a built-in community anywhere I've gone. So I came to the U.S. briefly for grad school. I was here for a year when I was getting my master's in journalism. Um, and then I moved back to Singapore and then I moved back when I was, you know, moving out here pretty much for good when I decided to immigrate here. And um, it was really, really challenging. You know, I, I didn't know a single soul when I moved out to Seattle, especially I didn't know a single soul. Um, it was just me and my partner and we were moving for his job. And it was so, so difficult. And Seattle anyway is its own kettle of fish. We have it. We actually have like a framing for how difficult it is to meet people. And it's called the Seattle freeze. So it's, it's sort of very passive aggressive. It's very like, Hey, wonderful to meet you. We should totally hang out. And you're like, when? <laughs> and then it's like radio silence. <laughs> so, so I definitely encountered a lot of that. And then, and then on top of that, the, the general lack of diversity in the, in the, 
you know, in the sort of metro Seattle area is also um, something that I encountered and found really puzzling, especially after moving from New York and, you know, living in London and other, again, very diverse places. Um, but I think for me, you know, the intentional communities was extremely important. Um, I did do a lot of intentional networking when I began and I was already, you know, I was sort of, I was already energized by this idea of, you know, women in leadership, women in business, you know, some of the things I'd like to highlight when I was a business reporter. And so when I was kind of looking, you know, examining, especially the technology industry and the lack of diversity and lack of female leadership, et cetera, um, is, you know, building community around that and building people with similar values, building a community of people with similar values was very, very helpful. It definitely kind of um, helped me move along. I also think, you know, one of the things um, that I found really useful, and again, maybe this is Seattle based, maybe other places, but once you have a little bit of like trust with, with people, um, I think we are told that you have to go at everything. You have to do everything and achieve everything alone, right? It has to be just you bootstrap. You do everything by yourself. Nobody helps you. Like we don't need any help. And I think that's a very, very negative and a very, actually a very damaging message. And one of the things I learned in Seattle, the way that I truly built a network was I would ask, and I was very intentional and actionable when I would ask for help. So I would say, Hey, I moved here. I'm, I'm looking for a job in, you know, this industry or would love some more information about this. Would you be able to help me? I'd be so grateful, right? Like in a very sort of, in obviously in a very gracious way, not like you, you know, I just met you and you need to help me. But I think when we shy away from how people can be helpful to us, and of course with that, with, with a very sort of down to earth approach, very humble, like I would do anything to help you too, you know, obviously, but um, sometimes I think when we talk in circles, we really miss the opportunity to create very deep, meaningful relationships. I love all of this. Thank you for kind of walking us through a little bit of that journey. And I, this, um, the Seattle freeze, I'm familiar with it from Boston. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm originally from New York. And in Boston, uh, it's really interesting. I have a lot of friends who moved from Boston to the Bay Area, you know, San Francisco area. And, uh, it, you know, in Boston, it could take a couple of years to really find your people um, because it's, it's very transient. And I think people assume you're not going to stay. Um, and then in Seattle, uh, it's interesting. It's similar to that. But in, in the Bay, everyone's really warm and welcoming and invites you over for potluck right away. But I've had a lot of friends say that they haven't found as many deep connections like in times of need. Whereas like if you take two years to get to know someone, they're more likely to stick with you through the rough patch. So it is interesting that these cultures are a little different by city, even though all these cities that I've mentioned have some transient populations. Um, it's not like it's local. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. we're all moving from one place to another, and yet these cultures persist, which is fascinating to me. But I, this last piece you just said, I wanted to kind of reiterate around asking for specific help. And I wanted to also think about how g offering help is just... I don't know. It makes me happy. It gives me joy to help somebody. And I think that's a, a common thing. It gives you a little endorphin rush. So yeah. it's in some ways selfish to try to do it all on your own. <laughs> so let's try that reframe for anyone who's listening, thinking that they have to struggle um, all by themselves up the hill. Um, you know, like ask for help. So it, it, when you find somebody who wants to share in that journey with you, I think it brings them as, as much joy to give, give you a little insight, 
you know, pave the way for you, try to like help you avoid the potholes of like the journey that you're about to ascend onto. Yeah. And I also think sometimes when you're very intentional about, you know, why you're meeting someone and I think, and I think this really matters as you go up the ladder. Right. I mean, when I think of like people I would love to meet, of course there are people like Oprah where who, who, if I meet, I would just, you know, probably first like gush or cry. And then after a while I would, you know, there's, there's a lot where I would just be like, listen, I just want to listen to you. It doesn't matter what you say. Right. But then everyone else beyond that, um, you know, especially when you, when you meet leaders who, you know, have really, really busy lives, really, really busy commitments, probably are pulled in millions of directions. I think there's a level of appreciation, like, thank you for appreciating my time. Um, and if there's some way that I can help you, which would be like a simple email or like forwarding an email or making an introduction. Um, I, I wrote, I wrote um, for my Seattle Times column a couple of years ago about the art of the forwardable email, right? And it's really about making life easy for others, right? So making it easy for someone to help you. In that way, they get that endorphin rush that you're talking about, but you also aren't wasting their time. You're not meeting them 10 times to try and help them, try and try and get them to help you broker an introduction with someone, right? You're like very honest and upfront about what you're looking for. Yeah. You don't want to make it a to-do item on their to-do list. You want to make it something they could just be like, yeah, I'll just do that right now. Done. Awesome. I'm going to hopefully let me know how that turns out. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's really great. And um, you were talking earlier about looking for your like, your like-minded community. I'm wondering if you have done any kind of in-person events, salons, dinners, uh, social gatherings to help you foster that. You're nodding, so okay, let's hear about it. Wait, so have I? So have I created or have I attended? Have you? Well, either. Yeah. What? Well, I mean, I think it's an interesting angle either way. Yeah. So actually, in the beginning of moving to Seattle, I in the in the beginning of my time here, I actually struggled a little bit because I was sort of in between careers, right? I was a journalist, but when I moved here, I knew that I wanted to transition out of journalism at the same time the industry was going through major changes here. Um, And so I really struggled because I was like, you know, I know I don't want to go into journalism. I don't want to necessarily just go to like journalism gatherings. At the same time, I don't want to pay like a huge fee to join like a professional women's networking thing, because at this point, you know, I don't really know where I'm going to be situated. I'm new to the city. Um, So pretty much about a year after I moved to Seattle, um, some, some women who I got introduced to in various other ways um, were starting this sort of informal breakfast slash happy hour that they would meet every six weeks or so. And, you know, I sort of jumped on that and I was like, I'd love to be one of the organizers with you and let's just keep this going. And, you know, from that, it just grew and grew. Basically it was largely made up of uh, both existing women to Seattle and new women to Seattle. And through that network, we do a round of introductions when we go, when we go around, normally it's just, you know, we stand in a circle at a bar or something and we'll say our names. We'll we'll say a little bit about ourselves. And then there'll be like an open-ended question. Like, what are you looking for this year? What, you know, what are you most happy about? What are you most proud about? You know, and, and it's, what's super cool is as a result that women's network, totally casual, totally, we, we haven't even named ourselves anything. There's no fee. There's no nothing. Uh, it, you know, bring a friend, bring four friends if you want, is people, women have found jobs. Um, they've found 
awesome creative opportunities with each other. Many have made friends, many have done sort of personal things together, um, you know, even gone on trips and things like that. And I think that's what I adore about that. It's very low pressure. Um, and I think, and I think often it's, it's that desire to connect with people who you may have one or two things in common with, but at the end of the day, we're a very diverse group of women from like literally all walks of life. Mm. That sounds like an amazing opportunity to both find those connections, but that maybe enough commonality to be in the same space together, you know, common values, uh, some shared experiences, but enough diversity to keep it interesting. Um, and, and, you know, actually building relationships with people in a, in a diverse setting like that, it's a great way to build trust, um, develop new connections and, and your network probably has expanded quite a bit very quickly because of it, right? You're this one activity every six weeks is very informal. I love that you said we don't even have a name for ourselves. (laughs) It's like, like, I think, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I think is something that's, that is more like deeply more uncomfortable and yet so much more rewarding is taking time to go out to events where people are different from you um, and where, you know, there might be, and, you know, again, I'm always, it's always tricky to say this like in a media context because then people are like, oh, so then should I be going to like, you know, uh, like hate speech rallies or something like that? No, of course not. Um, but but really seeking out perspectives and um, especially experiences that are different from yours and especially those that have been largely underrepresented in communities and in media, um, you know, and, and, that, and that really means stepping out of your comfort zone sometimes, right? That might mean, I remember years ago, my, uh, my husband was like, uh, he went to a heavy metal concert, right? He doesn't know anything about heavy metal. One of his friends that he knew was playing and they drove out to some like tiny town in Georgia to attend this. And he was like, it was such a rewarding experience to experience like music that I didn't know anything about and didn't care much for be in a community where like I was the only Brown person there. And still there was this like cool sense of kinship. There was this cool sense of like um, camaraderie that, that you build with people. And I just think more of us need to challenge ourselves to get out of that, those familiar comfort zones where we make those natural connections based on like things like language or skin color um, and, and, you know, really go the extra mile um, to seek out experiences that are different from the ones that we've always had. Yeah. And as a, as the white man in the room here, I'm going to just caution listeners that if you do show up to a space where you're the only white person, it's a good idea to listen for a little while before you talk. Um, and, and that's true for any, you know, in any situation where you are the only, you know, it's always a good idea to listen more than you, than you talk, but I promise you what you get out of it is so, so rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. So th- these are some great tangible ideas of how to to build a diverse network. I I had plans at one point to write a book on this topic, and then last minute switched the topic. <laughs> you so, should, should I think to be written though? I think this needs more attention. Yeah. I think we all do. I mean, there's a statistic. I read in the Washington Post, it, it's in my mind regularly that three quarters of white Americans don't have any non-white friends. And I think we really need to think about like when I think of when I think of the incredible 
experience and reward of growing up in Singapore and actually having people and neighbors and friends and teachers and all of that from literally every single country in the world that I could think of. Um, it It's made me so much more richer in, in every way. Um, and, and that's something that now that I'm raising a toddler here in the United States, sometimes I worry that that's not going to be his experience. You It'll know? have to be much more intentional to, for that yeah. to be his experience. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. We, have, we have been, and it, and you have to. And I really encourage more and more people um, who are Americans to really think about that. Yeah, in little ways and big ways. So um, we're getting to the end of our time here, and I I, um, I wanted to know. Well, one of my favorite questions is, you know, if we're meeting a year from now and we are toasting all of your success from the previous year. I want to know what are we going to be celebrating? So what are you really looking forward to in the next year? Um, so I had this goal last year, which I did sort of more behind the scenes. And last year it was amplifying the voices of at least five women of color. Someone asked me what was my goal around this time last year. And I said, I want to amplify the voices of more women of color. Um, if, if we're really, I would love to find a way to legitimize that, you know, and really make it into something which is very tangible this year. So that next year when we're toasting to it, you know, I can say like, hey, I built this thing, which will, which will really tangibly impact, you know, the way women of color are seen and sort of their voices are heard. Um, so, you know, some of the ways I've thought about that is really finding ways to ensure more women of color write op-eds, write more media articles, are seen as experts and leaders, again, not just on the topics of diversity and inclusion. I mean, if that's their thing, that's great, like it is fine. But, you know, anything on astrophysics, on, you know, technology, on artificial intelligence, on VR, AR, robotics, but really, really finding a way to ensure that more women and women of color get heard. So do you know uh, the op-ed project? Are you familiar? I do. Yeah. It's a great resource. You kind of amplify it and maybe bring it to a different community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Put, put a link in the show notes because I think it's an interesting resource. So Rashika, where can people find you and follow your work? Um, so I'm very active on Twitter. So it's at rtulshan, R-T-U-L-S-H-Y-A-N. That's also how you get to my website, R-T-U-L-S-H-Y-A-N.com. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty active and responsive. And sometimes I'll get multiple emails and I'll respond to multiple emails too. Um, so so do, do feel free to reach out to me. It'll be great to connect with you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ruchika. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 133. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance, and I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership, 
and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on their way to becoming successful leaders. Until then, have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.